the weekly curio podcast this week why some civil war soldiers glow in the dark how the incas actually did research for their farming and gardening throughout the entire kingdom we'll learn a lot probably way too much about my obsession the circus sideshow freak show and we've got jeff here with the puzzle of the week well so this is a very classic puzzle in physics and it is what happens when an unstoppable force hits an immovable object there's actually an answer to this. There is something that logically would happen when an unstoppable force hits an immovable object. We'll get to that later. College of Curiosity presents the Weekly Curio. I'm Tom Britton. I'm the chief cook, head bottle washer, writer, producer, director of the very small Chicago one-man show, Freak Show and Tell. And I'm Jeff Wagg, curator of the College of Curiosity. How are you today, Tom? This is great. This is an exciting an exciting project we've started here. I think I'm looking so. forward to this. The weekly curio the goal is to examine curiosities and bizarre stories, interesting media, puzzles, geekery for geeks, science for the science minded, pop science is what I yeah. refer to this category as. If we can get you to say huh or huh or wow once, just once during this podcast, we have accomplished our goal. So let's start with our, our links of interest this week. We got a few. Uh, you sent me you sent me all of these actually this week. Uh, one from mentalfloss.com on why some Civil War soldiers glowed in the dark. Yes, they did. Uh, so they didn't entirely. Only certain soldiers glowed. So so here's the story. First off, uh, I have to I have to give a shout out to Mental Floss magazine. They they are still sticking with the old school media here in, a, in an age where it's not so popular. But they also have a website that's at mentalfloss.com. And it is a magazine devoted to very similar things that I am devoted to. Um, curiosity for its own sake. Uh, take, just go see. And, and one of the articles I ran recently was about these Civil War soldiers who glow in the dark. So it's the Civil War. Technology is uh, still pretty primitive, but getting a little bit more advanced. People are starting to understand the world a little bit more. And uh, they're starting to observe nature. They're, they're not taking things for granted. And one of the things they observed was that some soldiers glowed in the dark. And it was very specifically wounded soldiers. In fact, it wasn't the entire soldier that glowed. It was their wounds that glowed. What do they think about that? I mean, the 1860s, what, demons? I mean, how far right. advanced were they scientifically? Right. I mean, they were, they were a little bit more advanced than that. I mean, they were familiar with St. Elmo's fire. They okay. were familiar with glowing swamp gas. Yes, that's actually a phenomenon. So, uh, and, and living in the woods, living rough, as it were, they would have seen foxfire glowing in the woods. I mean, they would have seen glowing things. But they called this angel's healing because the wounds that glowed healed faster, healed better, and the soldiers with the glowing wounds actually survived longer. Now, they didn't really understand that. They didn't have an explanation for why the glowing could have possibly helped these soldiers. And we don't have uh, a definite answer today, but what was suggested in Mental Floss uh, is a very complex life cycle between... And now I need to actually look it up, because... I'm gonna... I got to give them credit, though, for not leaping to a complete... Uh, woo explanation they didn't leap to obviously the hand of god obviously the hand of the angels obviously well they the did voodoo, call it the that. swamp well giving it a name i mean that's always fun right I certainly you know i like i like the fact we refer to it as the god particle i think it's punchy and catchy and, and gives you an idea of what we're looking for here uh but i like the fact that they didn't then just take it as rope that they continued to examine it as a mystery 
So what they think caused this was a bacteria called P. luminescens. That's a very appropriate name for a glowing bacteria. But this bacteria would eat other bacteria. It would basically grow there and prevent other organisms from taking over the wound, basically, uh, which would help it heal. But there was a problem with this theory. Uh, while this, this bacteria lives in soil and uh, is fairly common, it only lives in cold soil. So a uh, human body, 98.6 degrees Fahrenheit, 37 degrees Celsius, not conducive for this growing. So they thought, no, this doesn't explain it. And then they realized that these were Civil War soldiers who were wounded, who were ill, living in tents, living in leaves in the ground, uh, you know, horrific conditions that we can't even imagine today, and they had lowered body temperatures. So they think now that a combination of a lowered body temperature and this bacteria could have helped these soldiers survive longer. And uh, apparently just a few degrees, if you could get someone down to 94 degrees, 92 degrees, you know, very cold, very serious, not healthful temperatures, but enough to let this bacteria do its thing, which was to keep out gangrene, which was, you know, one of the most common killers. So head over to metalfloss.com and look that up. Uh, you know, you can search on glowing Civil War soldiers and find that. But it's a fascinating story. And, uh, you know, it, and I'm leaving out a big part of the story that I'll let you discover for yourself is the life, um, how this thing lives in nature. It, it, it does crazy things with nematode worms and there's this whole big thing. But that's the gist of it for this. The other link of interest I liked was the, the was it the Incans or the Mayans, the Moray? Yep. I always mixed them up too. Yeah, they're you know they were both pretty powerful and they took over all kinds of other tribes. But the best way to keep them apart is uh, the Mayans were kind of more Mexico, Incans were kind of more Peru, you know that kind of a regional thing. So yeah, this is a, this is a site called Moray. It's like like the eel, Moray eel. Um, and actually, I went to Peru uh, when I was nine. It was a very formative experience in my life. This is way back in the seventies, and I actually got to go to this site. So this is in Cuzco, um, which is way up high. It's like 13,000 feet. I got to experience altitude sickness for the first time. Uh, and you know what they give you for altitude sickness down there? I know what they used to give you. They, they still, still give you the same do. thing? They still do, yes. Coca tea made from the cocaine leaf. And uh, it, it is not... It is not cocaine. Cocaine is a preparation from the leaf. Yes. But, um, and you chew on it, or it's actually a proper tea? So the, the way I had it was a tea, and I was a kid, and it tasted awful, and I didn't drink it, and I regretted it later. Um, but if I were to go back, I would drink the tea. And uh, they, sell, they sell the leaves. Even uh, I was in Quito, Ecuador last uh, March, and there were, there were vendors selling the leaves in the street. Completely legal. There are vendors selling various forms of it on my street, too. <laughs> yeah. Here in Rogers Park, Chicago. There might be a little there's, less legality. There's no shortage of vendors selling <laughs> coca-extracted products. Well, you know, and, and of course, everyone knows that Coca-Cola gets its name from the coca leaf. There used to be an extract in there. In fact, there supposedly still is a flavoring that is derived from it. But, but in Ecuador and Peru now, um, the coca leaves are fine. You feel a little numb, um, but you don't really get the, the effect because it's not the extract. Um, you need to actually chew lime uh, in your mouth with the leaves in order to get that cocaine effect, which uh, I'm not terribly interested in doing. But at any rate, um, after you get past all the all of that, you'll notice that the city was built by Incans. Uh, the walls are made out of those giant, massive stones that have no space between them, um, which for, it was a mystery forever. You know, uh, if you've ever seen these um, these walls, and I'll put some in the show notes, um, you can't fit a dollar bill between the stones at any point. Which, that's amazing tolerances for modern engineering yeah, until 20 years ago, anyway. Right. You know, it's a feat. 
it, it was a feat then, and uh, no one knew how they did it. So, of course, aliens did it. because Of course, obviously. Yes. When, when there's no other second explanation, we leap immediately to aliens. That's right. But uh, someone recently figured out, and recently, I mean in the last few decades, it appears, uh, no one's ever seen anyone do this, but what they did was they would set up a base of stones uh, and rub them together. So if you think of this, if you take stones, you take any, any minerals and rub them together, they're going to conform to each other's size. Uh, yeah. They will wear each other down. So the interesting thing about the stones in Cuzco is that they're not all the same size. You can tell they just grabbed a block that was generally the right size, and then they just kind of rub them in with each other, and they, they're not right angles even. They'll be like a 45-degree angle on one side and a 45 on the other. You know, it's, I'll bet that's what messed people up, too, is when you're an yeah. engineer and you're looking at it and you see off true lines right. you think aliens clearly well, yeah. aliens like because to engineer it that way the way we would do it which would be to cut each stone to exactly those dimensions would be ridiculous we would never do that and it turns out neither did they so now these things weigh four or five tons it's still a bit of a mystery as to how the hell they were able to slide them back and forth i mean you can imagine they put some sand down and you know that their basalt the stones made out of basalt sand is quartz quartz is harder that would act a little bit to help it out but still very amazing uh and impressive technology. Now, the other thing you'll notice in Cusco and in most of that region of Peru, especially in Machu Picchu, uh, which is the, the famed tourist attraction, the lost city up in the mountains, are terraces. Now, they look very much like uh, terraces that you'd find in, uh, in uh, Asia, uh, you know, Vietnam and such, and they're used for similar purposes. They were simply to make very steep hillsides arable. You would have little growing platforms. But recently... Um, they found some of these in this place called Moray, which is why we're talking about this. And they don't make any sense. They're carved in a circle, circular shape, on flat ground even. They're not really how you would want to farm. And so now the, the new theory as to why these are there is they're experimental. We take it for granted that these people knew what they were doing, but how did they find it out? Well, surely they must have used trial and error like we would today. And the way it looks is this site, Moray, in Cusco, Peru, is actually their proving grounds for agriculture techniques. So they had different terraces, and archaeological research has shown that they tried different crops and different levels, and they were able to determine that, hey, these crops like the soil wetter. Let's put them in the lower levels. The water will run down and keep them wetter more. These other crops like a more dry environment. Let's put them up at the top. That's amazing. It's in essence an outdoor laboratory. Absolutely. With phases. So if I want to try 30% water at 15% humidity, I go down 20 feet. Right. Uh, I dig a hole 20 feet deeper, water it more. And now I've experimented with the northern part of the kingdom in the southern part of the kingdom. Absolutely. Recreated conditions. Right. And it's in a circle. So they were able to say, well, this is the southern light here. This is the northern light here. Oh, which yeah. And how do, they, how do we optimize this? We want to get as much food as possible out of here. So we want to put cl uh, plants that don't need as much light up in the north. Maybe plants that grow underground. You know, that type of thing. So it's an example of uh, pre-Columbian science in action. And you can go visit this spot right now. If you want to learn more about Moray, um, head over to atlasobscura.com. This is a great site for finding uh, crazy places in the world. Probably some in your own neighborhood. They are, they're not all exotic. I know there's a hundred sites in Chicago alone. And uh, just search on Moray or get lost in the 8 million articles they have, which is what happens to me. I definitely, yeah, I definitely did that. You sent me the link yeah. on Google Docs and I clicked it. And next thing I know, it, the related links are what gets you. Same yep. way Amazon gets you to buy more stuff. At the bottom, I was like, oh, I am interested in that. You're right. Yeah, click, click, Absolutely. click, click down the rabbit hole I go. 
Our last link of the uh, of the week for this week is uh, the one I couldn't read you were telling me about, but I love this, the red-backed shrike. Right, so a shrike, shrike, uh, you've heard this word before probably, but a shrike is a bird. It's a it's a passerine, that means it's a little person. Doesn't the, the word is falling into the, is it, it's like to yell shrike? Right, or To shriek, yeah. to, okay. It's a, yeah, and I think there is a. I think I've barely heard that word. I think there's a sports team that uses the shrikes. Uh, shrikes. That's a learned sports team. I yeah, I think that's their. Uh, their mascot, which which once I heard the story, it's not a bad mascot for a sports team, right? It's a uh, little dark. I hope it's not a junior high softball league. Yeah, there it is, Stony Brook School, Stony Brook Shrikes. Um, I don't know anything about sports, uh, and their pictures are absolutely ludicrous. But the Shrike. So you look out in your yard, and you have a bird feeder, and birds come and go, and everything seems peaceful, and they're chirping t- sweetly in the trees. But but no. No, shrikes. Um, shrikes are not a peaceful bird. Uh, shrikes. Well, let me just tell you what a shrike does. Um, and let me tell you how I found out graphically how they do. Um, I live near the Field Museum. I'm very fortunate in that. I have a membership. I can go there anytime. And every time I go there, I stop by one exhibit. It's on the main floor in the birds area. If you ever go there, it's easy to see. It's a winter display. And in this case, you have snow and trees with no leaves and a few little critters here and there. But if you look closely, you'll notice blood on the ground, or blood in the snow, little drops of blood, and they seem to concentrate under one tree. And if you follow up the truck, trunk, I'm sorry, if you follow up the trunk and then look in the leaves, you will see lots of animals. But they are dead. They are dead because they are impaled on the thorns of this very thorny tree, which is, is probably a hawthorn. This is a tree that has amazing thorns. Don't think rose bushes. Think scimitars. Uh, it's, it's one of these trees that you would never want to encounter or never, ever try to climb. What the shrike does is it catches its prey and then takes it back to one of these trees and turns that tree into its own pantry. And it will store the food there uh, for a few days. Depending on the food, a mouse will keep a few days. You know, uh, They'll let it soften up a bit, and then they'll come back and tear it to pieces. And in this display, um, you know, again, this is seen by kids. This is seen by everybody. They've held nothing back. Um, you see a mouse kind of in agony on, a, on a, a spike, and it's all kind of distended with its jaws open. And then there's a headless bird down the other end dripping blood into the snow. And the head of the bird is in the beak of the shrike perched at the top as he's kind of pecking at some of the neck flesh. This is the most popular exhibit among 12-year-old boys. <laughs> if they see it. See, this is the thing. It's a very understated exhibit. Everyone runs to sue the dinosaur yeah. or the elephants. You know, This exhibit has so much drama in it, and it's just this one white box. Uh, it's all life-size. I mean, these are actually, it's taxonomy. Uh, taxonomy. How, how big taxonomy. is the shrike? Shrike is about the size of a starling, a little bit smaller, um, you know, sparrow size. Oh, not size. a big guy. This is not a big bird. You, you would think, you would expect this behavior. And it could take a, a mouse? Hawk. A mouse. Uh, there was there was a rabbit in the exhibit. It didn't look too comfy. Uh, I admire its uh, <laughs> tenacity. And it it clearly uh, hunted more than it would need to keep itself alive. Uh, <laughs> now we dip into the territory of of my bit of expertise as an as an amateur historian of the sideshow. Uh, we had a link for Mike the headless chicken. Uh, yes. I always to me. I guess coming from that world, I, I was a circus sideshow performer and have mm-hmm. been for a quarter of a century. It never, it never occurs to me how rare this stuff is to the muggles. Yeah. My wife has to point it out. She goes, no, you should eat fire. I go, what? 
And she goes, yeah, because everyone doesn't do it, dummy. <laughs> I go, that's, oh, that's I right. That's right. Everyone doesn't eat fire. <laughs> At this party, my friends might want to see me eat fire. Same thing with Mike the Headless Chicken. I assume everyone knows about him. Apparently not. Every time I bring it up, they think it's some kind of a gaff. You know, it's like it's a trick or it's a stuffed chicken, which, well, it is now. But yeah, so, so basically, Mike the Headless Chicken. Mike was a normal chicken, a fryer. Uh, and destined to be on someone's plate, and um, I don't know the guy's name. I could get it for you later, but uh, does it have it? Do you have it right yeah, there? Lloyd Olson. Yeah, Lloyd Olson, of Colorado. Lloyd Olson, Lloyd, my buddy Lloyd. Lloyd grabs the chicken. Farmer Lloyd. And this is a real time farmer. You know, you want chicken, you go out and grab a chicken, and he brings it over to the stump or whatever. Cuts the chicken's head off. Let's go with the chicken. Let's it do its thing. So you know, when you cut a chicken's head off, you've heard of the expression running around like a chicken with its head cut off. Well. Chickens do kind of do that. Uh, their brains are not as uh, as important to their functions as ours are, and the chicken runs around. Well, this chicken kept running around. In fact, uh, it started to peck at the ground, even though it had no head. In fact, it was acting exactly the same without a head as it did with the head. This is a little unusual. And it turned out that uh, Lloyd kind of missed. I mean, he didn't miss. The chicken's head was clearly gone. But that tiny little piece of the brain at the bottom, that lizard brain, the one that controls heart rate and things like that, was still there. And it was still enough to keep this chicken, who he named Mike, going. For two years. For, For two, two years. years, Mike was alive Absolutely. and touring and in, in show business. And, and he behaved like a chicken. He'd flap his wings and he would peck at the ground without a head. He had nothing to actually peck with, which of course means he had no way to eat. And that's ultimately his demise. Uh, right. Lloyd had to feed him with an eyedropper. Yep. And uh, it, it's, an, it's a phenomenon. Can you imagine you walk in and there's the two-headed cow? Mm-hmm. That's what he toured with was like oddities of the farm. Yeah. So you got two-headed cow, you got a five-legged pig, you got a, some sort of deformity of a, a cat or a dog. And they're either taxidermied or clearly fakes. Yes. This is this is a bad taxidermy. Someone has slapped a second head onto a dead calf and sewn it up and I have already paid my nickel. In the 1940s he probably paid a quarter. Yeah. And I, but that's real money. That's that's a couple of bucks and you're at the fair where you're going to run out of money cuz you want to buy popcorn and corn dogs and cotton candy and ride mm-hmm. the rides. And you walk in and now there's something that you think is the perfect illusion. Right. I can't imagine thinking it's real. When you go online, Mike the Headless Chicken, he's famous, so famous there's a statue to him. There, and he's got his own website. Guess what it is? MikeTheHeadlessChicken.org. He's a non-profit chicken. Yeah, he's a non <laughs> I, I was also thinking, you said he's just got the lizard brain left. I was like, oh, poor chicken can't do calculus. Yeah, that's right. No, I mean, What no. do they need that whole top part of the brain for? What are they doing? Apparently, it's basically to hold the beak uh, because... Mike was still a chicken, and yeah, he toured for two years, and then uh, earned the equivalent of I think is it eighty five thousand dollars a month. Uh, sorry, forty eight thousand dollars a month. Yeah, in two thousand and ten dollars, uh, he was valued at ten thousand dollars of that of that time's currency. Yeah. So you know, definitely uh, more. Yeah, he tried again and again and again to recreate the experiment. <laughs> and, and how would one do that? Or as I call it. Providing dinner. I guess he's still, you <laughs> We're know. We're having chicken again, dear. This experiment failed. All we have is this delicious hand-raised farm chicken. Sorry for the convenience. Oh, terrible, <laughs> terrible thing. Uh, he, he never he never could quite recreate it. Though I would be interested to see, not as the kind of experiment I want to run on a farm, but if one must behead the chickens, yeah. might science not find the exact sweet spot for cutting them off? Uh, yeah, you know, I mean, obviously it could be 
it could be done again. They just have to figure out the exact spot. But he was he was active for two years. Uh, what uh, nineteen forty five to so it says April forty five to March forty seven. I'm, I'm surprised I actually knew the first part of that. Uh, this is the story I followed since <laughs> I was 17 years old when I first read it in a book. Well, you know, because usually you go to the freak show and uh, you, you see some natural uh, deformities, but they're they're not alive. You know, they're, they were still born. Particularly animals. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, if you have a real deformity of any kind, a real abnormality of the physical, it is a person. Right. You, you know, the lobster boy was big yeah. in uh, Topsfield Fair, Massachusetts. That was my only experience with this. And I I, I am the lobster man, the poor guy. Yep. And um, he was just a man who was born with a, a congenital deformity where he basically had a thumb and a forefinger that were slightly enlarged and they looked like claws. This is a Grady Styles or the yeah. Styles family. S-T-I-L-E-S if you want to Google him. And, and it was congenital and it was a dominant trait of some sort because yes. most of his offspring had it as do their grand or uh, it's watered down now. So less of, but a, a, a significant portion of the grandchildren also possessed this odd deformity of the hands. Yeah. It didn't still- slow him down. Grady was a sure. heck of a bar brawler. <laughs> I believe uh, it. So he liked his whiskey. <laughs> Grady did, and that was not a problem. He was working 15 hours a day, but in the off-season, mm. he drank just like in between shows, which was all the time. He got in a fight. Uh, my favorite story was there was a dwarf sleeping with his wife. He chased the dwarf <laughs> down and about beat him to death. Oh, that's a bit much. Uh, there's also a couple of stories of him in a bar, and someone says the slightest little thing. And he, he had stumps for legs as well, Grady, uh. so he didn't have quite fully formed legs. However, he could apparently move lickety-split across the bar, grab the guy, and proceed to, to issue a whooping. Wow. Uh, Mike finally succumbed. Mike the Headless Chicken in 1947. Uh, the poor guy. He's, he's feeding Mike, and he starts to choke. And he had a, a little uh, bulb, like you clear a baby's yes, nose with, mm-hmm. out in the van. By the time he gets to it and gets back into the hotel room, Mike was no more. A true loss. I don't know how long chickens could have left, uh, could have lived. <laughs> But uh, certainly a few more years. His career cut short, as so many are. And he was not actually turned into dinner, which was his original fate. I believe he toured with Ripley's. He might even still be in a Ripley's museum. Yeah, Mike the Headless Chicken is now in an institution in, I don't know how to say this, Fruita, Colorado, maybe? F-R-U-I-T-A. The annual Mike the Headless Chicken Day is the third weekend of May, starting in 1999. You can uh, do the 5K run like a headless chicken, (laughs) the egg toss, Pin the head on the chicken or the chicken cluck off. A while back, I, when I was learning about Mike the Headless Chicken and I kind of was curious about freak shows, you know, because I had really never seen one other than, than the Lobster Man at Topsfield Fair, which was this tiny little affair. What actually went on there? And I, so someone said, hey, well, you have to watch the movie Freaks because that was the real thing. And I was like, now seriously so then i did i watched this movie freaks this old old movie and and tom i know you know about this movie yeah the 1932 todd browning's freaks yeah pre-code pre what the hollywood code it was called um which i'm a bigger fan of pre-code films not because it's just the nudity i can take or leave that (laughs) uh sexual innuendo etc but drug use uh, language innuendo I find it more honest filmmaking ah, yes absolutely and then you do the code in 1932 and suddenly it's all the Metro Goldwyn Meyer uh, splashing around in a pool to music yeah. and it gets a little cheesy in mm-hmm. Hollywood uh, Todd Browning's Freaks is important to sideshow historians because he did use real sideshow performers and a few that were remarkable and as far as we know not repeatable mm-hmm. uh, Jonathan Eckhart 
is a half man. So picture a man from the navel down. He's just gone. Yeah. Just gone. There's actually a bit of rudimentary system left in there that was tied up with surgery, Mm -hmm. but it looks like a half a man. He walks on his hands. It looks... It looks like a magic trick. And he has no pelvis at all, right? I mean, it, well, it's, it, yeah, sort of, but it's really messed yeah. up. Most remarkable thing about Jonathan Eckhart. So he is a magician. Mm-hmm. He is a musician, plays about seven instruments. Wow. He's also a band leader, a conductor. <laughs> so think big band. He's mm-hmm. the guy in the front with the baton. He is a juggler. He is an acrobat in Boston or Baltimore, wherever he's from. They have a thing called screen painting. The screens of windows are painted. He was a painter as well. Wow. He was also an identical twin. That's the most remarkable. He had a fully formed identical twin brother. No kidding. And they caused a riot. (laughs) They're both magicians, though Johnny was more into it than his brother. They're working with another magician, so let's do this. Let's have the magician go on stage, this third person. He'll pull someone out of the audience, my twin brother. Mm -hmm. He'll then hypnotize the brother, and he'll explain he's going to saw him in half. You see where this is going? Oh, but wait, Johnny's going to twist it even more. While he's hypnotized him, and he's standing there waving back and forth as if he's in a hypnotic trance, we'll examine the props. Everyone look at this box. Behold this blade that is real. And that's when we switch. When everyone's looking at the box, no one's looking at the guy over there acting all cheesy on the side of the stage like he's hypnotized. Uh, An audience member playing along, as far as you know. Johnny Eck, on top of a dwarf... (laughs) <laughs> lies down, they put the blade through, they put Johnny on a slab of glass, they bring it to the front of the stage. Johnny pops up on his hands as if they're legs, and the bottom half walks wow. over next to him. He hugs his legs, he poses for the people, they are flipping out. This is a gorgeous illusion. It ends when the bottom half chases the top half off stage. <laughs> a riot occurred. 17 people were injured, oh. and the newspapers reported five were dead. No one was dead, mm. but the newspapers reported five people had been dead, and that was as good as fact. The retractions on page eight, the headlines on page Which one. Which made their act all the much more popular, I'm guessing. You would think, but they yeah. felt badly ah. about it. They never repeated the performance because I guess the thought was, well, you think for five or six days that you did kill five people. Ah, well, then okay. it turns out you didn't. You only injured 17 ticket-paying <laughs> people who were kind enough to come see your show. And you think, man, but what if it had been? What if we had killed five people? You know, I could just juggle instead. <laughs> Todd Browning captures this remarkable actor, and he also uh, did a Tarzan, the West Mueller Tarzan, he played a bird. And they could not figure out how they had this bird puppet walking around on its hands. It's an absolutely beautiful illusion, and in the theater it caused quite a stir trying to figure it out. So you can see Jonathan Eckhart in the West Mueller Tarzan. He also catches Zippy the Pinhead. Mm Mm-hmm. Who is, uh, suffers uh, uh, the pinhead condition, uh, encephaly, or something yeah, like that? It's more than just a comic. It, this is this is an actual yes. condition. Uh, Zippy was a male, though he liked to wear dresses, so often thought of as a, as a female, and ribbons in his hair. Mm-hmm. Uh, special needs guy. Zippy Zippy was very very mentally retarded, mm-hmm. um, but by all accounts, a sweetheart to work with, a very nice human being. Uh, not prone to any sort of outbursts of violence or aggression that you sometimes will get sure. with low-order mental conditions. Uh, just like to wear dresses, probably because they're more comfortable. I think <laughs> if I could, I would. Why uh, not? I recently acquired a kilt, and I can say... You're yes. halfway there. Absolutely, yes. <laughs> you need a ribbon in your hair. <laughs> That's right. You're ready to go. Uh, Todd Browning also had written a short story. Uh, I've got the name of it here. Give me one. A Spurs. And then he directed his own short story. He had worked in a sideshow at one point, this director and writer of the short story and the film. And so he had this idea that the two beautiful people would be the bad guys. 
a trapeze artist and another performer in the circus who were trying to con this little person, this dwarf, out of the money. Right. So the trapeze artist pretends to fall for him and they create intrigue, etc. Mm-hmm. Might have been based on the stories of Grady Styles oh. and the dwarf in the bar yeah. and all that. Might not have. The timeline runs a little funny mm-hmm. historically. The, unless they were talking over Skype at the time. I mean, it just, <laughs> right. you don't communicate that instantaneously back then. And so he would have written this story weeks after this incident would have occurred. That's that's a bit improbable. Yeah, probably. Uh, but either way, a very... It, it's not the greatest film I've ever seen. It's a historically important film. It's a simple film. I don't consider him one of the great storytellers or directors. Sure. But man, do I admire the chutzpah of putting in sideshow freaks. Right. As a result, it didn't work. Well, they, they if I remember correctly, the, the freaks at the end became a little bit menacing. The one of us, one of us. We yeah. accept, yes. Uh, there, it got cut and cut and cut and cut by MGM. For that exact reason. MGM kept having him go back and do recuts. It's too creepy. It's too weird. These yeah. people are too weird, too shocking. And despite all that work with the studio to normalize it, to bring it to the mainstream, it never, ever worked. Negatively reviewed by audiences. Uh, according to Wikipedia, uh, $164,000 loss. Uh, this is the 1930s. That was when $164,000 it was a lot of money. Not like yeah, today no. where everyone has that yeah, much just laying around. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the couch, I can find that much. <laughs> it is considered uh, 15th on Bravo TV's 100 Scariest Movie Moments for mm-hmm. the moment, moment you're talking about. And an incredibly important document Yes, for Sideshow Historians. Looking at it that way, we don't have a ton of film of Johnny Eck moving around. Right. And that was one thing he was remarkable for. Zippy the Pinhead interacting. There was a bearded lady. There was a, a very, very skinny man. Like, it's freakishly skinny, yeah. to, to coin a phrase. Uh, a lot of these classic sideshow freaks from the classic era of the sideshow. Mm-hmm. Thankfully, he documented that. This movie was banned in the UK for 30 years. Yeah. It falls into exploitation. Well, see, that that brings up the interesting point. I mean, the... Some freaks, if we're going to call them that, and I I imagine these folks actually wouldn't mind that appellation, uh, they were being exploited in some cases. The hot and taut Venus comes to mind as a completely exploited person, you know, and and they used to take Africans and put them in zoo exhibits. I mean, that's exploitation. But on the other hand, Johnny Eck was an accomplished uh, performer, renaissance man. He could do many different things. He was a performer. um, And... If society said, well, no, we can't exploit you because of your condition, we would be denying this man a career. And we were. Jeannie Tomaney, so Jeannie and Al Tomaney, were the world's strangest married couple. Mm. Uh, she born a half woman with no legs and no pelvis, it was said. Mm. Actually, more no legs. Mm-hmm. Uh, he a giant. Ah. They met in the sideshow. They fell in love. They married. They then settled in Gibsonton or Gibtown, Florida, the home of the freak show. Gibtown, if you want to look that oh, up. Yeah. And they opened the Giants Cafe. Through Wardhall, I got stories about Jeannie Tomaney and how pissed she was at what she called the do-gooders. Undeniably, Zippy the Pinhead was exploited. Sure. That poor, retarded person was sold like property back and forth. Or I should say, sold like an NBA player. (laughs) You can buy the contract of a freak right now. If you've got, I could buy a seven-foot-three freak if I had the money, if I owned the Mavericks. Right, you can force someone to move somewhere and do what you want. Buy their contract out. However, Zippy was not getting profit sharing. Zippy, unlike this freak in the NBA, did not have a players union, didn't have a manager, an agent, didn't have big, big, big bucks 
to help insulate some of the pain of being right. on display or playing hurt, as they often do. They're sure. shot up with all kinds of drugs, oh, legal yeah. and otherwise, just to do their job. So Zippy the Pinhead undoubtedly needs protection. The law, however, was sweeping, and Jeannie Tomani and Al Tomani, who are making the equivalent nowadays of, say, 85, 90 grand between the two of them, mm-hmm. a nice middle-class living sure. at a time when, relative currency, imagine you're making 85, 90 grand now, and we have a Great Depression going on. Right. You're yeah. from that era. To on welfare, on the dole. Yeah. Overnight, you become handicapped. You weren't before. You were unusual. You were weird. You were a freak. Now you're a handicapped person right. on the dole living off the government teat. That generation did not take kindly to it. So I got propagandized from that side to really hate the do-gooders. I see what yeah. they were trying to do to sure. protect these people. And like you say, bringing some some poor guy from the Congo right. to a strange country, doesn't speak the language, and both racially and culturally, no protections. No, none. An English-speaking African-American person had very little protection. Much less an African right. person Living had even in a cage. less. Uh, you know, literally, uh, yeah. it, it, this, it, there's the elephant, there's the African, really very little difference between them as far as the audience was concerned. Well, we have this problem now. I mean, it's difficult to yeah. write a law that fixes the wrongs without creating right. some Absolutely. with the right. Uh, if you get a chance, I definitely recommend going on YouTube and looking through clips of Todd Browning's Freaks. Yeah. Individual scenes are gorgeous, really well shot. He isn't my favorite director, but don't let me disparage him and make you think he isn't a competent director with some real skill sets. He's just no Hitchcock. Oh, no. And if you're a curious person, this film's historic value and uniqueness is is well worth the watch. Do not expect to be completely entertained for your 90 minutes or whatever it runs. And if you've never seen Jonathan Eckhart or Johnny Eck moving... That's, I yeah. mean, that's worth the two or three minutes it'll take you to find it on YouTube. It's certainly worth the price of admission. And and that act is still going on. Chris Angel did it uh, not too long ago, and I saw there was a, a viral clip on YouTube of a, a surgeon with a chainsaw who accidentally cuts his assistant in half. It's the same thing, folks. So we, we talked about Mike the Headless Chicken, which is one form of a, a freak, something you'd find in a freak show. And we talked about the movie Freaks, which had actual freaks. I'm, I'm making air quotes because, you know, that word is not entirely polite. But now I understand there is the, the, the man-eating chicken, which combines the two, sort of. This is a P.T. Barnum thing. Yeah. P.T. Barnum uh, didn't get into circuses until he was in his 60s. Mm. He had a career as a politician. He had a career as an abolitionist. Mm certainly on the right side of history. Uh, he also ran what we would now call the freak show, but it was in its infancy. He sort of created it. Yeah. He goes from dime store museums to touring museum shows, but yeah. they get dumbed down into side shows as they go. He had toured with Dumbo and Tom Thumb, buying oh, yeah. the contracts of both these successful performers and promoting them. And he had a problem where he just needed material. He had more audience than he did content. <laughs> and he wanted the money. So we create ideas. The idea of hokum, if you read the book, there was a book written in 1972 called Barnum. And the first, eh, probably 20% of the book is just trying to explain the mindset of Americans then. Mm, yeah. And how if I fooled you, that was your fault. Ah, uh, yes. You were the weak one. And he grew up in that culture. He had been told he would be heir to all this land, all this land his whole life. And it was bull. Uh, he finds out when he's in his late teens his whole family had been lying to him about this. That's a different culture than we yeah. live in now. <laughs> so these sorts of gags were, would actually be seen as quite nice. So I, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna make you angry. 
I'm going to stand out in front and I'm going to say, ladies and gentlemen, behind me, you see a banner and it says upon it, the man eating chicken. Let me be clear. What we have here today is real. It is alive. It is right behind me. Now, some of these other acts, they're fakes, they're frauds, they're dead, they're taxidermy. They've been dead since Hoover was in office, not the man eating chicken. It's heart beats. It's eyes blink right now. It is breathing. Everyone be quiet. Do you hear that? That's the man-eating chicken breathing there behind me. The man-eating chicken is a poultry catastrophe. It stands over six feet, two and a half inches in height. Over six feet, two and a half inches. It weighs over 165 pounds. It is real, alive, and behind me right here. For a quarter, a dollar, a dime, you get in line right this way you go. So right now, I'm the guy just walking by going to get cotton candy, and I hear the spiel, and I'm like, I can't believe this. And I've but, hit all the talking points. It's not it's not fake. That that right. world's smallest horse was a taxidermy dog with a horse head stuck <laughs> on it. Right. Yeah. So in you go. You go in, yeah. what do you see? There's a booth, they whip back the curtain, and there is a man eating chicken. And I, sh- I didn't mention this before, but on the sign, the hyphen is missing between man and eating. Yes. Uh, it, 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 and you laugh and you think, oh, you got me. You got my quarter. But what P.T. Barnum did that was brilliant was that was the beginning of a museum tour. Uh, yeah. So you would go, oh, you bastards. You got my quarter. Look at you. Well, right this way to the sword-swallowing bearded lady. Uh, oh, well, that sounds interesting. And down the rabbit hole you go. He did this with the egress as well. He needed people to move more quickly through his dime store museum in New York. It was very popular. And they were backing up. The quicker I can move you through, the more money I can sure. put in my pocket. So he hung signs everywhere that said, see the egress. Must see the egress. Cannot leave New York without seeing the egress. And signs all along, this way to the egress, this way to the egress, <laughs> to the left of the egress. Egress is Latin for exit. Yeah, you're, if you're thinking white Ingress. birds from Florida, no, not egrets. Yes. Egress. You would walk out the door. The, behind this door, the egress, you walk out, it locks behind you, you're in an alley. <laughs> But it doubled his revenue because you would go, yeah, yeah, so it's well, it's cool, honey. Let's go see the egress. So you would move more quickly to this premier attraction. If you go to the Museum of Science and Industry and look where the premier attractions are, <laughs> right. they're near the end of areas yes. so you can corral, you can load the channel is the term. So that uh, that Shrike exhibit is at the beginning. Yes. And they all head past it to the dinosaur and back up all the way to the That's Shrike. And that's the same thing with the train, the same thing with the IMAX yeah. theater. You load the channel. P.T. Barnum completely transformed museums with this kind of, I don't know what you call it, hokum it is the term. Now, it's not false advertising. It's it's a, it's a joke. It's a it joke. Is. Well, and that was what was fascinating to me is like, okay, so you fooled me with the man-eating chicken, but I'm going to go tell my friends that don't, don't pay your quarter because it's just a guy eating chicken. The opposite happens, though. Right. I can tell you from doing snake shows. Which are not the same fake. What I do with a snake show is I'm definitely selling you one thing and giving you another. Out front, I say, and I do have this. This is legit. I have 17-foot-long pythons, two of them, one albino, one green. That was the show I was in. And we're selling you that. Okay. These beasts, these monsters of the Amazon are alive. They're real. Their heart beats. Their eyes bleed right behind me. 50 cents is what it cost in 2001 was the last time I pitched a, a snake show. Mm-hmm. Stood up front and talked about it. Barker is what most people call it. Uh, in the t- in the sideshow, we don't call it Barker, but it's yeah. the same thing. The guy, step right up, step right up, that guy. That was me. And for 50 cents, you'd go in. Well, it's snakes. See, if those are even a little bit real, the kids are going to be amazed. Sure. Let's bring them in. 
Now, what we do is there's a, a, a square of plexiglass in the middle of the tent. So you're all around this pit of plexiglass. In the pit are a bunch of three-foot, four-foot boas, maybe a dozen, and a young man. Huh. Eek the jungle creep. <laughs> and he's dressed like Tarzan. The whole idea is, here's the con. I don't even call it a con. Here's the show. He immediately drops the character because you're too smart for that. You're special. Mm. Come here. Let me look at Come here. Seriously, though. Look at his eye. Do you see how the camouflage of a snake goes right through the eye, changing the color? Isn't that neat? It's, there's a couple of them like this. So now he's giving you an amateur herpetologist lesson. Yeah. And your kid goes, well, do you ever get bit? And he explains, well, they don't have fangs. These are constrictors. But yeah, this is a new one. And I got too close to her. And she's scared. It takes her a while. She's afraid I'm going to eat her. <laughs> ha, ha, ha. Finally... After he charms you for a few minutes, you get this special show. There's no Eek the Jungle Creep. It's what everybody gets. Everybody gets behind the curtain. We don't have an Eek the Jungle Creep version. <laughs> you do a little herpetology. You're, you're, you're Steve uh, Irwin or whatever. Yeah. But in a loincloth. Uh, <laughs> you go, look look behind you, though. There's, the, there's the, the big masterpieces. Those are both alive. They don't move very much. And you turn around. There's two 17-foot whatever mm-hmm. giant pythons. And you're looking and you're ooing and you're eyeing. And while your back is to eke the jungle creep, he throws a braided piece of rope over someone's <laughs> shoulders. And they shriek. Best if you get the six foot three football player. Yeah. Right? And you aim for it. You start to do demographic work. You start to do racial profiling. You start to do gender profiling. <laughs> you start to read shoes. Who will scream the loudest? And it's the funniest. Because it's funnier to get the big guy than it is to get the little woman. And so you start trying to play these odds. What happens? A couple of guys come in. They bro out. Hey, man. Oh, cool. He's not going to do the jungle creep shtick. That's great. Oh, this yeah. is much. But oh, cool. Look, it goes right through his eye. That's neat. You ever get bit? Check out the snake. Boom. His buddy goes, ah, and runs out of the tent. <laughs> they go get their girlfriends. Ah, uh, yes. They come back. They pay another dollar. We'll let them come back in. We're nice guys. The new the two girls with you, that'll be a dollar total. In they go. They do the thing. As soon as they turn their backs... One of the men who knows what's coming will throw Eek the high sign. Get that one. <laughs> Her. She's the screamer. <laughs> there goes the braided rope. They hit the ceiling because now their friend is targeting them for us. Out of the tent, they run. They go get six more friends. Right. Everyone wants to go on the ride. If you blow the punchline, you don't get to go on the ride again. And the undecided people out in the midway are hearing screams coming from this tent. There's nothing better than you get a group of high school girls. 10, 11, uh, 10, 11 of them, 10th, 11th grade. And you hit one. And you happen to hit the one that shrieks the loudest unless she has a snake thing or friends brought her in. No, no, we'll protect you. I went in earlier. He's really not. He won't throw him on you or anything. He's not, he's not that kind of guy. And he's being so nice and charming. He's not even doing that goofy geek character he was supposed to do. He's just telling you about the snakes. And he's got you calmed down. Right. And you hit it. And the sides of the tents flop open for that reason. <laughs> Because you run into the wall and you can go right through the wall out to the midway. And once one young lady starts shrieking, they all start shrieking. Then they start laughing that nervous, high, loud laugh. Oh, yeah. And you want some of that. You see them wiping the tears out of their eyes, holding each other like they've just come out of the most fun haunted house ever. <laughs> oh, my God, I can't believe that happened. What happened? Well, don't tell him. Right, right, right. You got to go. It's 50 cents. So this stuff, once you get grinding on the midway, 
50 cents, we'd make three to 400 bucks a day. And you know, Gross. you're not really, you're not really cheating people here because the whole point is to entertain them. They have fun. It's a good version of bait and switch. It is. It, it's, I've sold you one thing and I give you that. I, I you're going to see two snakes. They're really large. There's other snakes. 50 cents, please. Yeah. You didn't know there was a show. You didn't know there was a gag. You didn't know there was a whole thing. But you paid me two quarters to see these two giant snakes. And the, so it wasn't like you saw animatronic snakes in a show. No, right. You got what you paid for, but you got this whole other thing. I don't know if the man-eating chicken's exactly that, <laughs> but you get an experience. And the trick is to make it cheap. If I did the yeah. man-eating chicken now, I'd do two bucks, max two yeah, bucks. right. Because that's flushable currency. Yeah. You're not going to cry if you lose with the whole family. You paid eight bucks to get in. It's worth two bucks to see what the gag is. I mean, that's where I'd be coming from. It's like, all right, they don't have a 160-pound chicken back there. Those don't exist. But what do they have? Well, it's worth two bucks to find. It's almost like a puzzle. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. So then what's the solution? Like, this guy's clearly made some promises. Yeah. Am I going to come out just angry because he's lied? Or, yeah, and then you see it and you go, ah, didn't think of that. Very clever, sir. Uh, Right. And you move down the midway. But the most important fact, your money is now in my (laughs) pocket. (laughs) And finally, we come to our puzzle of the week. We told you, we asked you at the beginning, what happens when an unstoppable force Hits an immovable object, and Jeff, you said there was. I don't. I don't know this one. You said there's an actual proper there's an answer. Actual logical answer. I thought this was the sound of one hand clapping, sort <laughs> no, of this, thing. That that's that sound. No, it no, it isn't. This is not a koan. You're not supposed to meditate on this, although you may have originally. But um, it was just a. It was something that's thrown out in physics class to say, you know, math doesn't have a solution to everything. But in this case, you don't need math to solve it because the answer is in the puzzle itself. What happens when an unstoppable force meets an immovable object? Well, the force doesn't stop, and the object doesn't move. The force simply flows through the object. Now, this isn't something we see in the real world. If you imagine the unstoppable force as a baseball flying and the immovable object as a wall, we would expect the ball to bounce off the wall. That's how I say That's why I thought it was a, a, a riddle. It is right, because that's our experience. But actually, since we're using uh, impossible adjectives here, unstoppable force, well, we don't know of such a thing, an immovable object, we actually don't know of one of those either, because we're in that realm of logic, the only answer that fulfills the necessaries of the question is the baseball would go through the wall. Or the unmovable object, I'm sorry, the unstoppable force would go through the immovable object, thus staying true to the original question. And thus, the curio of the week, ruining meditation for millions of people... (laughs) You're welcome. And thus concludes the pilot episode of the Curio of the Week. You can find out more about my partner Jeff at collegeofcuriosity.com. You can find out more about my touring mix of science and freak show at freakshowtell.com. Thanks for listening. We really appreciate it. On behalf of Jeff and myself, have a good week. (laughs) 